Let me pray for us as we get going. Lord, thank you that we had an opportunity to look at the instructions for your tabernacle this week and to think about how um, those instructions remind us of Christ. I pray that your spirit would be with us this morning, just opening our hearts, helping us to uh, learn even more about you and to apply these truths to our hearts. We pray these things um, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we get started this morning, I want you to think about a time when you prepared to have somebody come and stay with you. Now, this might have been somebody who is going to come and stay with you for a longer period of time, maybe a time when you were single and or still are single and were preparing to have a roommate come and live with you. Or maybe it was when you were expecting a new baby to come and stay with you. Or um, as we thought about last night with foster care, maybe you were expecting a foster child to come into your home or a child that you were going to adopt to come into your home. Or maybe you were just expecting a visit from family or in-laws or from a special guest. Think about the preparations you made to get ready for that person to come into your home. Maybe you cleaned out a closet, or you got a guest room ready, or made up a guest bed, or maybe you even transitioned kids out of a room, um, so there'd be some place for the person to stay. Or if you're like me, you ran around cleaning madly (laughs) to get your house in a bit of order for the person to come and stay. And have you ever found yourself unprepared for a guest to come? I'm sure people who were doing foster care or even adopting uh, found themselves woefully unprepared for that person to arrive into their home. I was thinking of a time when we were in D.C. where we were having some guests that I didn't really know very well over for lunch. I had gotten every, I had done that cleaning, gotten everything ready, put the roast in the oven, flipped time bake on, and then gone back to church. I had arrived back to our house just a few minutes um, ahead of our guests to open the oven door and find a raw roast in the oven because only to discover, oh, time bake on this oven doesn't seem to work. Um, So thankfully, everything worked out okay. But there are times even that we're unprepared uh, for guests to arrive. Well, all of these preparations that we do make or preparations that we wish we had made Um, say something about the person who is coming uh, to stay with us. They say something about maybe needs that that person has or about the way that we want to care for that person when they come um, into our home. So we do preparations in order to be ready for the person who's going to come to stay with us. And in this section of Exodus, God is getting ready to come and be with his people and they are getting ready for his arrival. So when we look at our tabernacle instructions, which we spent a lot of time uh, looking at in detail this week, we will see that the tabernacle instructions tell us something about God. The tabernacle instructions tell us about the God that we worship. Well, before we look at our passage um, in more detail, I want to do a big picture overview of Exodus. And this is appropriate for us to do it at this point because we're entering into a new section of the book of Exodus. 
um, you will probably remember from earlier when we've talked about how the book of Exodus divides into two big divisions. And we can think about those divisions geographically. There was the Egypt period of Exodus, and we have the Sinai period of Exodus. In the Egypt period of Exodus, it was all about God redeeming his people. That was chapters 1 through 19. Well, now we're in the Sinai period, which is all about God having a relationship with his people. And this is going to be chapters 20 through 40. So we have redemption, chapters 1 to 19, and relationship, chapters 20 to 40. But then the second half of the book, the part where God's having a relationship with his people, this can be broken down even further. We saw uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been spending time in chapters 20 through 24, where God's given commandments or rules for his people. Uh, Liz talked to us last week about God's rules for his people. So chapters 20 to 24 are God's rules. And then chapters 25 to 40, the the part that we'll start this week, is talking about God coming down to dwell with his people. It's about God's residence with his people. So God's rules and his residence characterize his relationship with his people. So his rules and residence are part of that this big section of his relationship with his people. So the first half's redemption, the second half's relationship. Relationship can be further broken down into rules and residency. I don't know if you guys find that alliteration helpful, but I thought I would give it a try. And I thought if John Svensson were here, he would, he, he would uh, give me the old thumbs up on that one. <laughs> well, our passage today fits into God's residence with his people. And as I said earlier, we're going to see that the tabernacle instructions tell us about God. And we're first going to see that the fact that instructions are even given tells us something about God. And then second, we're going to see that the specific items in the tabernacle and the imagery of the tabernacle tells us about God as our king. And then third, we're going to see that the specific items and imagery tell us that God wants to have a personal relationship with his people. So let's um, start out looking at the very beginning of our passage because it makes it clear that the tabernacle is being constructed so that God can live with his people, so he can take up residence with his people. So look at chapter 25, verse 8. Let me read that verse for us. And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is probably the most important verse of our section and probably the most important verse of chapters 25 to 40 because it gives us the reason why a tabernacle is being uh, constructed in the first place. And that is because God wants to dwell with his people. He wants to reside with his people. This is a voluntary act on God's part. He doesn't need to come down and be with his people. He has a beautiful residence up in heaven. But he wants to come down. He wants to be 
uh, with his people. And so he gives them instructions so they can build a tabernacle so that he can come down and be with them. So let's look at these instructions in general. What does the fact that God gave the people instruction tell us about him? Well, earlier I had you guys think about what preparations you would make when someone's coming to stay with you, either either for a few days or for a long period of time. Well, in this case, the Israelites are not deciding what preparations they should make for God. But God himself is giving them the instructions on what preparations need to be made. I wonder if you um, ever had a guest who uh, got in touch with you in advance and told you what preparations need to be made for their arrival. I'm seeing a few nods, especially um, if you have had people from overseas come to stay with you. Maybe this has happened. Uh, This happened to us when we were living in D.C. A pastor who we didn't really even know from overseas was coming to stay with us. And we realized later this is just a clash of cultures, and so we needed to be okay with this. But before he arrived, he sent Michael a whole list of things that I was to do for him in preparation for his arrival. Uh, This included, like, copies that I was supposed to have made for him and food that I was supposed to have prepared, and I needed to be ready to drive him around to certain places. I mean, this is, okay, this is a little, it was a little, when I heard it, my back went up, you know, I was a little bit like, what? Um, But then I just had to realize this is just a cultural difference. Because, you know, honestly, when guests are going to come to our house, they don't normally give us a list of rules or instructions um, about how we're to prepare for their arrival. But in these passages that we looked at, God gives them specific instructions about the building of a tabernacle to get ready for his arrival. Uh, And he needed to do this because there was no way he could come and live with them unless they had made specific preparation. And he was the only one who knew what specific preparation needed to be made. Uh, Now, I don't know how you felt when you were reading this um, passage, but we were talking at our table about how it felt a little bit tedious at first to kind of be reading through all of these different things and how exactly they needed to be um, constructed. I mean, at first, I kind of felt like it was like a little bit of like new vocabulary for me. I don't know how many of you guys looked up what a calyx was or a tenon, but I definitely learned some new vocab words. Um, And I was measuring out, we had people at our table who were measuring out the cubits and what that was in feet and inches and how it actually worked in terms of the construction. Um, Maybe some of you guys were helped out by having some pictures in your Bible um, that actually showed you what the tabernacle looked like. Those can be helpful, but we always want to remember that artists have to make interpretations, and so we need to take those pictures with a grain of salt. Uh, Maybe if uh, Moses were here today, he would look at that picture and say, no, it really didn't look like that. Um, But we do know that Moses had an exact picture of what the tabernacle was supposed to look like. He not only got these instructions, but he had the picture in um, Exodus 2630. 
it tells us that Moses had the exact plan um, and saw the picture of what it was supposed to look like. Well, although the instructions might have seemed a bit strange to us, they were purposeful. They were communicating truths about God. Let's look at the first instruction uh, there in chapter 25, verses 1 to 2, and see what this is telling us about the Lord who is giving these instructions. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. So we see when we're looking at the overall instructions that were given, that these contributions for the materials were meant to be voluntary. God didn't want anybody to be compelled to have to give. He wanted the people to do it voluntarily. Uh, And this makes sense when we think about the people's relationship with Pharaoh, right? Nothing about their relationship with Pharaoh was voluntary. Everything was forced, and everything about that relationship was negative for the people. So the contributions here are voluntary, and the people were eager to give, weren't they? Because God had redeemed them from Egypt. And then we can think about how this applies to us today, because God wants our worship of him also to be voluntary. He doesn't want our worship to be compulsory. Because if our worship were obligated, then it's not really worship at all, is it? It's just something that we're doing because we're forced to do it. But God wants us to worship him voluntarily. Now, that doesn't mean that we only worship when we feel like it. Voluntary and feeling like it don't go together. Uh, voluntary can mean that we start to cultivate good habits of worship. So our worship is voluntary, but we know that we might need some good, put some good habits um, in place. But reminding ourselves that our worship of the Lord is voluntary, our giving to the Lord is voluntary, our service to the Lord is voluntary, that can help us Uh, to really cultivate the heart that we want to have when we're worshiping the Lord, when we're giving to the Lord, when we're serving the Lord. And of course, we, like the Israelites, are excited and joyful to worship because we know we're worshiping the Lord who has redeemed us. Well, why else does God give specific instructions so that he can live among the people? Why did he need to give these particular instructions? Well, another reason is because the people were familiar with idols uh, from their time in Egypt. They were very familiar with idols and left to themselves, what would they have done? But if they were going to worship God, they would have come up uh, with an idol. They would have crafted an idol. In fact, we're going to see this that they do just that in just a few weeks when we look um, at the golden calf. Left to themselves, this is what the people do. And so God has to give them specific instructions. Uh, And these instructions for the tabernacle are what I like to refer to as anti-idol. These are anti-idol instructions. Um, They're anti-idol Uh, We'll realize this if we think about it in a couple of ways. First of all, the metals that are used. 
The metals, you've noticed, I'm sure the gold is used for the very inside. Then the metals get less precious as they go out. Well, the only metal that the people would have seen was bronze or maybe silver. They would not have seen that beautifully ornate gold that was all over the inside of the um, Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. Not only that, um, but they would not have seen the ark. Regular Israelites would never have seen the ark, and most of the Levites would never have seen the ark. Um, they, in fact, the ark was wrapped up. We learned this in Numbers 4. The ark was wrapped up when it was being transported. So, and so this is all anti-idol, because when you're making an idol, you want to use your uh, best craftsmanship, your most ornate and costly items to make the idol most visible and beautiful to the people because the idol is intended to evoke worship from the people. But God does the exact opposite. God hides away the most costly things because God does not want the people to unintentionally make the ark or anything that was inside the tabernacle into an idol. God wants those things to just stay in there so that he might come down, be with his people, and so his people might be worshiping him alone and not be worshiping an idol in his place. So this is why he, has, uh, he gives the particular instructions that he does. Now I want us to think about the specific items and imagery um, inside the tabernacle. I think she did a really good job of taking those, each of those items one by one and showing us how they connected to Christ. I want to look at the items kind of as a whole and think about two different ways they show us something about God. Um, and the first way is they remind us that tabernacle as a whole, the items that are inside the tabernacle, the way it's constructed, reminds us that God is our king and that God wanted to let the people know that he was coming down to be their king. Think about the tabernacle um, itself. It was uh, the word tabernacle in Hebrew, I think she pointed this out in the lesson, uh, is dwelling place. So the very word itself is letting the people know this is not only a place to worship the Lord, but this is also a dwelling place, a type of palace for the God, for God. And then we have the furnishings that are in the tabernacle. And some of those furnishings are furnishings that we would expect to see in a palace. So we have this ornate table. It's got plates and dishes and pitchers on it. And there's bread that's on the table. This is the dining table of a divine king. So these furnishings remind us that God is our king. And not only, the, the table also reminds us or makes us think back to chapter 24, right? When the elders were eating in the presence of God. So these things remind the people, God is their king who is dwelling in his palace. And then we have the lamp the lamp that is lit all the time? Well, in a palace, we also find lamps that are lit. And lamps are lit 
when the king is in residence in his palace. So the lamps here are lit all the time. And I think most likely that is to let the people know God the king is in his palace, the tabernacle, all the time. Once he comes to dwell with his people, he is always with his people. We also have the purple thread uh, decorating those curtains, which is a royal color. And then finally, we have the most important furnishing, the ark. And she talked in our lesson about how the ark is the throne of God. It's the place where uh, God came down to visit and to be with Moses and to speak with Moses. So all of these different components of the tabernacle were meant to show the people God is coming down to dwell with you, to be your divine king. So why would this be so important? Well, remember again, the king that they had been under, Pharaoh. God's telling the people, now you're going to have a new king. I am going to be a good king to you. In fact, I'm going to be the best king that you have ever had. And every time the people thought about the tabernacle, looked at the tabernacle, they should have been reminded, we have the best king ever because we have God as our king. And it's the same for us today. God is also our king. We don't have a tabernacle anymore that reminds us that God is our king, but we know Jesus came down to earth to be our king. And after he died and rose again, he's now seated on the right hand of God. He is up in heaven on his eternal throne as our king. And even though it doesn't seem like that because his kingship is veiled right now, he is still our divine king today. So if there's an authority in your life or there was an authority in your life or maybe someday there might be an authority in, uh, in your life that's more like the Pharaoh authority, it's not a good authority, not good for you, remember that Jesus is your divine king in heaven. You can go to him and intercede. You can tell him of your difficulties. Now, maybe all that, that bad authority will not be removed from your life today, uh, but we can still speak to him about it, and we know that in some way he will work, even if it's just giving us the strength to endure a difficult authority in our life. And then we know that one day, He is going to come back, and we will see him unveiled as our good king. And he will rule us forever as our good king. This is what we have to look forward to. So that's the first uh, imagery uh, uh, that we have in the tabernacle, pointing to God as the divine king. Well, then we have another... um, set of imagery in the tabernacle instructions. And this imagery is pointing to the fact that God is going to dwell with his people personally. And this comes through the imagery of creation and the Eden imagery that are in the tabernacle. And she pointed some of this this out. Um, I'll particularly focus on the Eden imagery. Of course, Eden was the epitome of 
earthly creation, right? It's the, the best that we had of earthly creation. And so the tabernacle is east-facing, uh, just like Eden, the entrance to Eden. The lampstand was a tree, wasn't it? It might even be an uh, image of the tree of life or meant to evoke the tree of life. The materials used in the temple were onyx and gold. And if you go back and look at Genesis 2.12, you'll see that onyx and gold were found in Eden. And then finally, we have the cherubim, you know, over the mercy seat and all throughout the decorations of the tabernacle. And then she made the point in the lesson that the cherubim were also guarding Eden. So more Eden imagery. Well, what's so important about Eden imagery and that being um, a way to let the people that got know that God wanted to dwell with them personally. Well, it was in Eden that God talked and walked with Adam and Eve, wasn't it? It's when he had that unfettered relationship with them in which sin did not get in the way. And God, through all of this Eden imagery, is letting the people know he wants to and is going to undo all of the effects and all of the curse of the fall. He is going to prepare to dwell with his people personally, just like he dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden, and he is going to undo all of the corroding effects of the fall. Well, of course, he can set up all this imagery for the people, and they can look at that and think about Eden and be reminded of that, But there's still the problem of the fall. Sin is still a problem in their lives. Um, And of course, that's why he has to have all the curtains separating the most holy place, because the people are still sinful. Well, that's why we have the um, mention of the ark and the mercy seat. And the mercy seat, um, another word for that, uh, the Hebrew word for mercy seat is connected with atonement. And again, she brought this out in the lesson. So we have hints already with the mercy seat that God is preparing to make atonement. He is preparing to deal with the sin of the people. And right there in the tabernacle, he wants to let them know, I want to dwell with you personally. I know there's a sin problem, and I have a plan to take care of the sin problem. We get a little bit more of the plan when we have that altar of incense, and then we learn in Exodus 30.10 that Aaron needs to make atonement once a year uh, for that altar, and we find out that the atonement is to be made with blood. So we're getting another hint of the plan of how God's going to take care of sin, and that is going to be with a blood sacrifice. This is the way God's going to make a way for us. And then in the New Testament, we have this beautiful picture of how Christ, through his death and resurrection, has made a way of atonement for us. And the picture comes to us in the empty tomb. Remember how in the mercy seat, we have the two cherubim, the two angels who are facing each other? Well, when we get to the empty tomb and Jesus has been resurrected, we have a similar picture. Let me read uh, John 20, 12. This is when Mary comes 
um, to the place where Jesus had been laid in the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. What does that remind us of but the mercy seat where the two angels are facing one another? And in there, the picture is God completes the picture. Jesus' death and resurrection is the way that sin has been dealt with, the way that atonement has been made, and the way in which we can once again have that personal relationship of Eden with the Lord. And of course, we don't experience that fully in this life, do we? This is why we long for heaven, because when we get to heaven, the effects of the fall will be completely obliterated, and we will know that personal relationship with Christ once again fully. So this imagery reminded the people, every time they looked at the tabernacle, it reminded them that God was their good king and that they, God wanted a personal relationship with them. So when we look at the tabernacle instructions, we might think they are a little bit tedious to read, and we are going to be looking at them in detail for the next few weeks. Um, But let's remind ourselves that they are important, that God's the one who needs to give us the instructions. If we tried to come up with it on our own, we would make a total mess of it. And that the tabernacle is meant to remind us that God is our good king and that God wants to dwell with us personally and has made a way through Christ to dwell with, our, with us personally. I love the fact that John, the sermon we heard on John 14 connected so well with thinking about God dwelling with us personally. And it sh- Jesus, even before he died, was telling his disciples how he was going to be with them through the Spirit in dwelling them. So when we are reading the, the tabernacle instructions these next four or five weeks, just keep reminding yourself they are pointing beyond themselves teaching us something about God and the way that he wants to live with his people. And uh, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you that you've, you have given us these instructions even today. Uh, and Lord, I thank you for the way that they remind us that you are a king and that you want to be with us. And Lord, I pray that even as we go throughout our weeks uh, where it just doesn't seem like you are our king reigning in heaven, I pray that you would bring things into our lives or scripture that we read or um, people that we speak with who would give us that reminder so that we might keep that vision before us. And Lord, I, I pray for all of us that we would treasure the fact that we can know you personally and that because of what Christ has done, we can personally come before you. I pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.